Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. I'm your host, Sucheta Kamath, and I believe having these conversations about an important topic of executive function, how the self-regulation works, how do we guide uh, our thinking, our behaviors and actions by um, in a, a self-enlightened way so that we can achieve our goals and allow other people to achieve their goals as well. And there are so many important things uh, that go into understanding executive function and creating communities uh, where people have very strong executive function because uh, executive function can also be the backbone of morality, uh, critical decision making and uh, taking um a perspective of the other. Um, I kind of want to uh, share with you some of the uh, symptoms or, or signs or behaviors of uh, children, adults, or adolescents uh, with underdeveloped executive function. Uh, what do they do uh, when our executive function skills are not sharp or on par? Uh, you tend to be impulsive, easily distracted, act without thinking. Uh, you easily forget goals, you know, dislike effortful tasks or lack persistence. Uh, there's a low level of frustration tolerance and high interpersonal conflict. Often uh, uh, those individuals tend to go for risky things. And I like to call uh, the uh, below the radar risky things, which is not turning in homework is a risky thing, right? <laughs> uh, not preparing for a test is also a risky thing. So one risky thing may, may be speeding when you know uh, at that bend cop tends to be uh, and poor problem solving, lack of self-correction and requiring constant attention or motivation from an adult if you're a child, but also if you're an adult requiring a lot of nudging from your contemporaries, peers or your spouses or bosses. So. With that in mind, um, uh, is our understanding of executive function clear and concrete as we think it is? Or is there any uh, uh, role um, racial bias plays? Because are we seeing certain groups to not be capable of doing these things well? Or are we faulting them for uh, their dysregulation as if, a, as if it is a character flaw? And those are very important topics that I like to dive deep into. And that's why we have a very special guest today, Dr. Willie McBride. He is a new assistant professor with Spalding University School of Professional Psychology, where he is the Adult Emphasis Neuropsychology Director. He finished his two-year fellowship with the neuropsychology department within the University of Virginia Health System. He also serves as the treasurer for the Society for Black Neuropsychology, which we're going to talk to him about. And he also previously completed a fellowship in interprofessional psychology at the Tennessee Valley Healthcare System in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Uh, he, uh, one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to him about because his research interests include neuropsychological practice with minority communities, forensic neuropsychology, and personality. 
He is originally from Louisville, Kentucky, um, and uh, not to stereotype, but he does enjoy vinyl records, video games, uh, and uh, loves to debate the merits of anime as a national pastime. Oh my God, I can't wait to hear more about that. So uh, with all that said, it's going to be a very delightful conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Willie. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So I don't know which direction to go first. So I'll start what I do with my psychology friends. Uh, I would love to know how your executive function skills were when you were a child uh, in a middle school and high school. And how would you describe your own self-awareness and strategic thinking when it came to managing your learning? Oh, wow. Uh, how much time do you have? Um, you know, as you were reading off all of those issues that, uh, kids or adolescents or even in adulthood we have with uh, uh, executive functioning. I was thinking about, oh, I had that one, I had that one, I had that issue. Um, so, so it's very interesting to hear those things. But, but for me personally, um, I was always a, a high achieving kid. Um, growing up, uh, you know, I think there's a, a, a difference between like, you know, you study hard, but then some things come naturally to you as well. And yes. I did study hard, but then there were just things, things that just kind of came intuitive. And I tended to rely on the intuitive stuff. And I always did good, like at least a B, you know, in, in terms of grades and things like that. And I would get, get my A's as well. But I always thought about that I could be pushing myself a little bit harder and I could be doing a little bit more. And I'm like, why, why am I not like 4.0? You know, I wasn't that student who was a 4.0 student. And it was like, I was a procrastinator. <laughs> even even with how great I did, and as a PhD doctor, I, I still had those moments of procrastination where it was like, hey, I'm doing really good. I don't know if I want to push myself as far as I could go. And it was like, sometimes it was like procrastination. I would wait to the last minute. And, you know, I struggled in those things in terms of, I think people have the misconception that high achieving people can't struggle with yes. executive functioning issues. Um you know, we just happen to be high achieving as well. And I, and I hope it doesn't come off as, as, as a little narcissistic, but it's like, that's, that's what I was. I was high achieving. I probably could have done exponentially better, but I was like, mm, I'm, I'm just, I don't feel like it sometimes. Um, you know, I, I'll wait to the last minute. Um, I, I've read it before. I know what I need to do. Those types of things used to come out. You know, what's so interesting as you're saying that, and I know we'll get to the meat of your expertise, uh, but uh, but I think when we talk about um, personal competence, high motivation, uh, which kind of helps you sustain effort, uh, but just because you're sustaining effort, you may not be strategic. So to me, uh, that's the kind of piece that you're talking about that you can have. Uh, when you develop your high level of executive function, you become very strategic. So you're impactful with your effort. Uh, so sounds like you were smart, talented, you saw the rewards and, and you continued to see the benefit of your hard work, but you were not consistent or strategic is what comes to mind. Yeah, I was, I was not strategic as much as I could be. And then I knew exactly what I needed to do to get the good grades, but not necessarily to push myself beyond those limits of where I could really be going to like maximize that potential. Absolutely. So let's dive into this question of neuropsychology. Uh, explain to our audience, what does the field of neuropsychology mean? And what do you as a neuropsychologist uh, do? I have had lifelong uh, relationships with neuropsychologists, which has been one of the my favorite partnerships because based on 
those findings, I'm able to construct uh, a, a treatment plan. So, and mm-hmm. secondly, you know, uh, what are you passionate about when it comes to neuropsychology? Uh, mm-hmm. where, how did you discover that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, neuropsychology is a, a subspecialty of, of psychology in general. I mean, there, there's a number of different subspecialties that you could go into. It's like a rabbit hole. Um, but neuropsychology, the, the, the broad focus is uh, the study of brain and behavior, Okay, brain behavior relationships. So we look at um, anatomical regions of the brain. Um, we look at uh, you know what correlations we can see. So if somebody has uh, deficits in what we call the prefrontal lobes, the areas in the front part of the brain, um, that speaks to executive functioning uh, dysfunction. Um, so what neuropsychologists are do specifically clinical neuropsychologists. So we work in clinical populations. We work in hospitals, private practice, uh, school settings. Um, We work with people that have dysfunction of the brain. Um, And so where I did the bulk of my training is uh, working with people with uh, older age issues that are related to dysfunction of the brain. So Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, stroke, all of those things uh, impact the brain um, emotionally. Um, our ability to process information. And so what I do is I help uh, neurologists, I help primary care doctors figure out the severity of those issues. Um, so, so for instance, you know, we can take an image of the brain, right? We can do a CT scan, we can do an MRI, we can do an x-ray, we can get all of these images of the brain. And you can actually see where there might be dysfunction. You can see evidence of a stroke. You can see evidence of a brain tumor or you know, other things, but that can't tell you what that's going to look like in that person's day-to-day life, right? Mm. Um, Those are not a one-to-one correlation. So what neuropsychologists do is that we help figure out, okay, how severe is this person's memory deficits going to be? How severe is their inability to inhibit what they say or um, plan? How severe are those things going to interfere with their life? And so that's the bulk of my work is um, doing evaluations and doing assessments of people Uh, who have those difficulties. Um, I enjoy my job. I love um, just the the mystery of the brain. Um, When somebody comes into my room or into my evaluation clinic and uh, they have concerns for dementia or is it dementia or depression? um, I love exploring about what is actually causing the issues that they're having. Um, I think of it as a puzzle. I think of it as, um, you know, I'm an investigator I get to ask a lot of questions that they're not usually prepared for. And then I love being able to do the testing and the evaluation to see how those things line up. Um, so I like the inquisitive aspect of it. And I just like the brain. It's just such a cool organ. You know, you, there's so much that comes from it. And um, we're still learning more about how it works. So so that's kind of like, uh, you know, I nerd out when I talk about, you know, things related to the brain. So I just I enjoy it all around. Well, I think the uh, and it, it truly comes through your your passion for this investigative attitude. You know that uh, great curiosity, problem solving, and uh, I share that with you. I think uh, I was wondering, you know, um, in education and and me, uh, you know, for me coming from a speech language pathology perspective on impaired mm-hmm. brain, also helping people uh, regain their skills and strength has been my path. But when I look at education and children, uh, we have psychoeducational battery or psychologists who assess the relationship between teaching and learning 
mm-hmm. uh, versus neuropsychology, which is the brain behavior relationship. Uh, what are your thoughts about, uh, um, you know, we need to know a lot more about the brain because learning how to learn is really the key to unlock your own ability as a learner and thinker. But when we uh, look at the testing or evaluate somebody for struggles, we are always saying, did learning take place? So we are looking at, you know, what your level of math competence is, what your level of reading is. So what are your thoughts about um, we not doing that enough in schools? Um, Or do you feel comfortable commenting on that? Well, you know, I, I don't do a lot of my work in schools, but, you know, what I would say is that I absolutely agree with you in that um, thinking about the individual and learning styles um, from not just, just the individual, but culturally, you know, um, how people are reared in the home and how people learn, you know, where do they start learning how to learn? And that's typically done in the home. And so if you have cultural differences in how people learn, and then you can you give an example our, for our audience? Well, sure. Like, you know, for just like um, African-American children, there are differences in how uh, their learning styles are, are um, in terms of more uh, uh, active learning. Um, you know, it's, it's not just uh, sitting down and reading, but there's a lot of uh, physical play and, and just different things um, in that aspect. Um, for instance, you know, from a cultural perspective of Western culture or Western like United States culture, um, the tests that we use uh, looking at what we call processing speed um, and all, a lot of our tests look at how quickly can you do something in this certain amount of time? Can you complete this task quickly and efficiently? You know, our, our culture is, is designed and, and looks at uh, uh, getting things done quickly. You know, if you go to a restaurant, it's like, okay, how many people can you get in to go into that restaurant? But if we go to other cultures, where speed and getting things done as quickly as possible is not a priority, you see that actually most people, even if you give them a test where they say, hey, finish this really quickly, they're going to prioritize accuracy and taking their time over speed. And that's not a bad thing, right? That's not, that's, that doesn't mean that someone has a deficit because they take more of their time. And so I think we need to rethink, you know, it's not a one size fit all for educational background or educational learning styles. Um, We need to be more mindful of individual learning styles and and how do we fit our teaching methods to that child or adolescent. Wow. You know, I really appreciate you kind of making a reference to the cultural component, which is, again, I think in our field is new. I feel, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, most of psychology also began as a deficit based. How can we address deficits versus now looking at the larger development of of, uh, how people gain skills and knowledge? And, you know, I myself coming from, uh, you know, being born and raised in another country and then Mm -hmm. migrating to another has given me great insight into how cultures operate. And, um, uh, for example, uh, you know, work is non-negotiable. So there is no, can I do this later? This concept just doesn't exist at home. So right. when, when parents says, do it now, do it, and you must do it, there's no, it's not negotiable. And, right. and uh, second thing, for example, you know, uh, doing work around the house uh, comes before uh, your schoolwork. So you mm-hmm. cannot say, I have schoolwork, hence I cannot help. That is non-negotiable. <laughs> so 
I remember we uh, when I was growing up, we had a very intense like state board exam, okay? Like it's like, I don't even know what your equivalent test would be here. Um, but the most difficult test, national test, uh, if you want to get into college. And the night before my test, my, my parents still required me to set the table, do the dishes, help out with uh, with the mopping. And then they say, okay, now you're free to go to study. <laughs> can, can, I, can, I, can I get a break just this one night? Like, like just, just, just this once, just this once. And and what I found, though, um, I think that was such a profoundly uh, that made such an impact on me because I think like you are always part of a community and your community depends on you and and your goals are secondary to the to the community's goal goals. It was really important. And now I see just the opposite in my private practice, for example, the parents are like dropping the projects off or they're taking the homework that was left on the table, you know, I mean, and the kids are absolutely, their plates are on, in their bedroom because the parents have served dinner there, you know, those kinds of things. I'm not knocking anybody out, but I do think there can be a cultural tone that sets the expectation. So violating expectations uh, uh, is a failure of executive function or is failure to expect executive function proficiency? <laughs> I think yeah, I agree with you. I think it's 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 probably the latter, you know, in terms of like just kind of thinking about our conceptualization of executive functioning. Like, what are we really talking about? It, it's this, you know, even in the neuropsychology. I'm sure you know this. In the neuropsychology world, there is debate about using the term executive functioning to describe this entirety of just multiple abilities and tasks, and and just like what are we really talking about here? And I think I don't think there's a consensus on executive functioning. So you're going to hear a lot of different perspectives on it if you talk to a, a number of different people. Hence, this podcast absolutely is being needed um, because you have so many perspectives on it. Uh, yeah. So I think maybe uh, in your opinion, how do you see uh, um, how should we understand executive function? And, uh, you know, you particularly uh, are interested in uh, uh, minority communities. And how do you see uh, um, the proficiency or lack of proficiency in executive function seen uh, in that particular community, which is we don't need to leave the country right here, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, share that with us. Well, well, I think of executive functioning, um, I, I would say that, um, you know, from my own perspective and just kind of my own study, there's there's levels to executive functioning. You have your, uh, I would say, basic building blocks, uh, attention, um, working memory, processing speed, um, the, I would guess lower order, uh, executive functioning abilities, but then you have uh, higher order executive functioning abilities. So, you know, can you inhibit a thought or inhibit impulsive behaviors? Um, can you multitask switch between two opposing things? You know, two people are talking in your ear. Can you, um, you know, uh, block out what's one person saying and focus on your attention there? Um, and then thinking about planning, foresight, judgment, decision making, Th those those involve um, a lot of different processes that not only re rely on your frontal lobes, which is the area where we think of uh, executive functioning being housed. You know, if let's say judgment or decision making. OK, judgment, decision making, making a rational choice based on on ideas or things that we learn, where does that information come from? Where is that information stored? Like the ideas of, okay, I shouldn't cross the street, right? We use those types of questions 
Um, I should look both ways before I cross the street. But where does that knowledge of crossing the street come from, right? That's not housed in the frontal lobes. That might be in the deeper parts of the brain and our memory storage banks where it's like, hey, somebody told us that we shouldn't cross the street. And so now we're having to use our frontal lobes to go grab that information. So it's a multi-system process, right? Um, And the frontal lobes is probably what my supervisors used to call, and I'm going to quote her, is like the CEO of the brain. Yes. Um, that's the area that, that does all of those things, that relies on all of those other parts of the brain to organize and make those decisions. Um, when it comes to, uh, you know, the culture that I guess I would represent in terms of the African-American culture, um, I've seen some um, troubling things just in terms of when, let's take children who have what we would call executive functioning difficulties. They're impulsive. They can't sit still in their seats. They're inattentive, what we would call probably ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, There has been research that has shown that um, when you look at uh, matching, um, and and I'm I'm paraphrasing, um, teachers who are of the different race and they have students in front of them who are African-American, they're more likely to uh, recommend them for, you know, uh, behavioral disruptive classes or special education rather than, um, you know, uh, gifted education or things like that. Um, and so you see this. What What is the reason for that? What is the thing that is causing that issue to happen? And I think it's expectations and understanding mm-hmm. of what executive functioning looks like and people who have, are of a different background or a cultural background. Um, so, so I see that, you know, African-American kids tend to be labeled more as disruptive, uh, uh, problematic, um, you know, behaviorally disorganized, um, and, and not effective learners. Um, but I think that there are some other things that are going on that impact that that we need to address, um, which is, I think, a, a lot of bias. And so... Um, and, you know, even, uh, uh, can you maybe extend that, uh, how that this may show up in adult world, uh, as, uh, you and I deal with clients, uh, minority clients. And again, I don't know about your profession, uh, but you know, my profession, for example, uh, is 95% is predominantly, uh, white. And uh, uh, the field of speech language pathology is in service, uh, providing service to people of all um, sorts of, uh, uh, you know, communities. And uh, so understanding that uh, is really critical, but you may not have the greatest understanding about, uh, um, I'll I'll give my example, and this is nothing to, you know, I tell people I became brown after coming to this country, but, you know, when I was growing up in India, I was like, all shades of brown, you know? Right, Uh, right. But I do remember um, I was uh, young and naive and was not married, but I had a patient who had a stroke, and she was uh, during childbirth. And so her baby and the mother were wheeled into our um, our department, and she had a stroke. And um, there was uh, the family was from different culture than I was uh, in India. It's like a mini Europe, I like to say. You know, different mm-hmm. regions of India is different practices, and they all were very. Um, they also were pr- from the rural uh, part of Bombay, and so when they came, they. And we talked about therapy. Uh, their first 
uh, pushback was she doesn't need to speak. We'll take care of her. So what, what it meant was like, we will never leave our own alone. But if you didn't understand that context, it might sound like she doesn't have any identity or she doesn't have any need. So we, her you know, disability now is permanent, so we're going to walk away. So if you didn't take that time to understand what that cultural reference meant, you could misunderstand that interaction. And mm-hmm. uh, so uh, anyway, so any thoughts about uh, how this you know, comes up in the adult interactions uh, serving the needs of various co- uh, communities? Well, well, I would say that um, uh, it, I think it's a multi, there's so many ways you could go with, with that in the sense. So like, let's start still with those kids. So I referenced uh, the, the study and, I, and I'm blanking on the authors, but um, <clears throat> if, if those kids, those African-American kids are, are placed in special education or, or education that um, is not what, whatever is standard, um, that impacts their developmental growth educational growth as they matriculate through school. Um, They still may graduate high school. Um, But we're learning, particularly for African-Americans, is that um, quality of education. Um, In the test that we use as neuropsychologists, we have to use norms with normative data. So when I'm seeing someone in my clinic, um, I'm having to use, like they, they get a certain set of scores. Let's say I give them a memory test and they get they remember five words. Okay. What does that score mean? Right. What does that five words mean? Is that a good score? Is that a bad score? Is that a a great score? And we have to norm these tests. The, the, when, when the the people who create these tests, they uh, did all of this psychometric research and they normed them and they got a group of people who they said, Hey, these are normal people. And these are people who are impaired. And if you get a score here compared to normal people, um, that means you're in this range, average, low average, above average, et cetera. But what we're learning is that, for one, uh, a lot of these tests don't have really great norms for culture, for minority Cultural groups. norms, yes. <clears throat> right. Um, African-Americans, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, Latino groups, um, um, any culture outside of the majority culture, uh, the norms aren't usually that great. And so you know, we're thinking about the quality of education and how that is a better indicator of people's functioning later on. Um, Those kids who become adults who have had that lack of quality of education, that's going to impact their ability to, you know, have good jobs. That's going to impact, particularly if they, you know, have later behavioral issues that could lead them into juvenile justice system or to in uh, the criminal justice system. Um, you know, I could imagine that if you look in the criminal justice system, a lot of those people who are incarcerated have had a history of learning difficulties and have had been held back and have had so many different things. So thinking about it from just the perspective of what it leads to that ultimate negative side is that, um, not having great learning, being taught how to learn efficiently can impact your ability to do so much in the rest of your life, even just having quality life. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. And and so such a thoughtful uh, way of considering that. And that actually brings me to another perspective he- here. I would love to hear what you think. You know, we know from the work done by psychiatrist and author of The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel mm-hmm. uh, van der Kolk, that children and adults who have experienced traumatic experiences uh, adapt 
to life and learning uh, far differently than those who haven't experienced such such things. So should there be any special considerations given to children whose childhood experiences have a uh, social cultural bearing uh, that may have induced trauma, uh, including uh, racial discrimination? Absolutely. Um, yes, 100% yes. Um, we, we know um, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Um, um, that's not my area of expertise necessarily, but the literature shows that those childhood traumatic events, and that's not just when we think about what I think about typically is, um, you know, emotional, verbal, physical, sexual abuse, um, but poverty, lack of, you know, food, um, um, homelessness. You know, there are a number of children out there that are experiencing inconsistent home, uh, uh, housing. Um, so all of these things, um, uh, low air, I mean, air pollution, you know, all of these things that create health disparities, um, they absolutely impact the development. Um, one of my, you mentioned one of my fellowships, the, the interprofessional fellowship, um, and that was at a, a veterans hospital, right? So I'm working with veterans who have experienced trauma as more than likely related to military combat. Um, and we know what that does to the brain. It impacts executive functioning. It impacts memory, emotional regulation. What do people think is going to happen to children who are experiencing these things on a, on a daily and yearly basis? Um, you know, the, uh, an example I'll use is that, um, you know, a young African-American kid who's coming to school, he's coming to school because he, he needs to get food, right? That's yes. where he's getting consistent meals every day. And he doesn't get food at home. And so he's thinking about his mind is not necessarily on learning necessarily, right? Can we fault him or her for that not being a priority when there's so much food insecurity in that person's life? Um, so no, you know, we, we can't just think that uh, we cannot overlook those aspects and those factors and how they significantly impact uh, the development of young brains, old brains, all, all brains. You know, and, and I think as, uh, you know, more and more I read about uh, different ways at the um, outcomes, life outcomes or, or, you know, scholastic outcomes or the America's ranking um, in the world. Uh, I, it just uh, breaks my heart that we have not paid great attention to impact of poverty and poverty in America. And um, the kind of um, support that we have determined is adequate for people in poverty. Somehow there is a colloquial wisdom that goes into it thinking that people have inflicted poverty on themselves by making poor choices. And also people have um, lack of motivation to not uh, demonstrate uh, a vigor to pull themselves out of poverty by pulling themselves with the bootstraps. And, and so there's an incredible um, uh, structural uh, uh, disadvantages that are not paid proper attention to. Do you have any thoughts about what are we not getting right when it comes to the way we design support uh, uh, for people? Because support also has this sort of fundamental belief of deservedness. Uh, you know, who deserves support and opportunity for change versus who doesn't. And secondly, uh, I don't know about your field, but in my field, everything is driven by insurance or private pay, right? So insurance, whether it's children, then um, the way we have structured receiving therapy or executive function intervention comes from schooling 
or as a private practice practitioner, or it is uh, um, something that as a tutor, right? So that all is now tied into affordability. So the very skill that needs to be improved with help, you need experts, but those experts are not accessible. Um, so I'm wondering what you're, uh, sorry for my uh, little drawn out question. No, no. Um, um, you know, I, I, I think that there needs to be an overhaul of uh, multiple systems that, that, that play a role. Uh, health system, um, in terms of what you described, in terms of insurance and the coverage that uh, the resources that are available to people who don't have those resources and have to be on, you know, maybe government assistance or uh, government funded uh, insurance. Um, though, you know, helping to fix to fix poverty is a really labor intensive thing, yes. um, and it's really hard. Uh, and so, I I don't know if our system is designed to really put the amount of resources that are needed uh, to help make changes. Um, you know, there, there's a, a, multi, a multi-system family therapy is a type of therapy that um, where it, it focuses on family, but it focuses on, a, let's say, a, a child who's having trouble in school or at home, but it uses the resources of the community around that child. So it could be the parents, but also the grandparents, aunts, uncles, uh, you know, football coach or counselor at school, you know, so it's like you're, you're involving multiple people in the care of this, of this one individual. And that takes a lot of time and resources. And, um, you know, I don't think that, uh, the system is designed that way at this moment, but I think it should change. Um, I don't, I wish I could come up with a solution that, that would fix everything, but I think in terms of just kind of putting more, money and resources to helping these communities, we would see a lot of changes there. We, we know what's the root of a lot of these things. It's, it is these adverse childhood experiences. The research shows that, the psychology research shows that, you know, um, in terms of what that does for the development and, and mental health issues. Um, and so I think that if, if we don't start changing those systems from a policy, state and federal level, we're going to be trying to uh, push back on a system that, that, is, that is just going to continue. Yeah, this just reminds me of uh, a study by Hare and his colleagues uh, who found that children living in a household just above the federal poverty level had grave uh, matter volume three to four percentage points below the norm. And then children living below the federal poverty line, their gray matter volume was eight to 10 percent below the norm. Then eventually what happens is uh, this leads to these kids performing four to seven per- points worse on standardized tests off the start. Like, and, and the single reason is poverty. So the brain has yeah. not had an opportunity to grow and nothing to do with core capacity or intelligence for sure. And, and, and so when that leads into there are a number of studies that look at something we call cognitive reserve. Yes. meaning the, the faculties that help kind of stave off cognitive decline as we get older. And so if you're already starting out with that handicap or that, that disadvantage, what does that mean for the trajectory of your brain long term, right? And what does that mean if you do get a stroke or if you do get some injury to the brain? That means that if you had that cognitive reserve, that might protect you more. But because you're already starting out with such a handicap, um, that doesn't bode well for those individuals. 
So another interesting thing you you have done, which is so important and vital, is you and your colleagues co-founded the Society for Black Neuropsychology, uh, which is an organization of neuropsychologists, trainees, and students interested in promoting the discipline and practice of neuropsychology as it pertains to Black population. So tell us more about your reasons to engage in this work. Mm-hmm. Well, it, 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 all, it was all birthed out of uh, an idea uh, from a friend of ours um, who is actually, ironically, no longer in neuropsychology. Um, but we were all at a neuropsychology conference, um, I believe, in Washington, D.C. This was maybe five or six years ago. And so we were just looking around, and, and it was one of the few times where I'd seen uh, that many uh, Black trainees, Black students, Black neuropsychologists all in one place. Um, and so we kind of came up and like, hey, why isn't there an uh, organization devoted towards uh the advancing neuropsychology as it relates to black communities. And so we started putting our heads together and started creating the organization and creating the, all of the stuff you need for an organization, the articles of incorporation and the bylaws. And so we planned it for such a long time. And like, this is what we want the organization to do. And so um, we actually um, launched, um, I think at the height of the uh, COVID pandemic, um, around the time that uh, Brianna Taylor was murdered, and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and so it was this fortuitous time where Society for Black Neuropsychology, SBN, um, um, came to life. Um, and so our goal is to um, ideally just be a place, a home for mm-hmm. uh, students, trainees and neuropsychologists who all identify as black, um, who, um, you know, and not just African-American, but if you are Caribbean descent, if you are from Africa, if you are from the Netherlands and you identify as a black individual, we know that there is a need for neuropsychology services, research uh, providers um, for black communities. Um, African-Americans specifically, you know, have higher rates of Alzheimer's disease. Um, um, They have uh, some of the, the highest rates of health disparities as well. So all of those things impact the brain later on. Um, you know, I make the joke that, you know, you can, uh, you can get a heart transplant if you're lucky enough, you know, in terms of just being a a right candidate, the right timing, that's something that modern medicine can do, right? We're not at a place where we can replace your brain, right? No. Elon Musk has not figured out a way to transfer consciousness to a computer. He's working on it, but we're not there yet. So until that time comes, we only have the faculties that we have. And so um, I want to talk to people about taking better care of their brain because, you know, without that, everything else, you know, we, we can't do a lot of other things. Um, yeah. So what what do you particularly see uh, um, this investment in increasing the representation of black neuropsychologists? Um, what kind of impact would it have uh, on the population that we are serving well, there are a number of things, and there are a number of researchers that have been doing this work um, um, a lot longer than, than, than I have, and, and our experts in the field, uh, uh, Jennifer Manley, Desiree Bird, Monica Rivera-Mint, those are some uh, neuropsychologists who have been doing work on just m- cultural neuropsychology, mm-hmm. um, looking at education, looking at uh, diversity issues. And so um, neuropsychology, as it relates to the Black community, um, it can lead to uh, uh, better outcomes for those individuals. So 
I like to give talks in, in the community that I'm so, so I'm from originally from Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm back in Louisville, Kentucky. And so my heart, my passion, and my goal is to get in front of as many black communities as I can to tell them like, Hey, once you get to a certain age, you need to start looking at, you know, going to see a neurologist and going to have uh, neuropsychological evaluations. This is why it's important to take better care of your brain. Um, we know that, um, African-Americans tend to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and dementia at a later point, right? So their progression of neurodegeneration is a lot farther along when they get that first diagnosis or even when they get in front of a neurologist. Um, And so that means that maybe those resources or uh, tools that we could use to help them are not there because they're farther along in the disease progression, right? And so um, you know, the outcomes are, are, are worse. If we have more black neuropsychologists, um, you know, we know that often oftentimes African-Americans are misdiagnosed with dementia at a higher rate. So it's both things. They're, they're not given the diagnosis when they need it. And then they're also misdiagnosed because we know that the tests don't necessarily always uh, tap into uh, the deficits that are uh, impacting black communities. So um, just in terms of having providers that know more about you and, and have your uh, uh, are impacting your community, we need that. I um, mean, we know that that would be very important. So as we think about, uh, um, you know, working with diverse population and uh, really trying to serve the needs of all by improving our understanding and creating appropriate cultural context, uh, this concept that was uh, proposed by uh, McCormick Hunt and their colleagues, uh, which is a perspective taking, uh, you know, uh, idea. And so it's uh, called intersectional thinking for advocating for social change. And uh, I, I know you're very interested in that. Uh, so I was wondering if you can talk about uh, how to apply that framework, which is uh, you know, for perspective, um, for ideas to shift our perspective, to engage in in thinking that people uh, are not this, um, you know, one identity. There is a multiple mm-hmm. factors that uh, have a role to play. Mm-hmm. So well, tell well, us I, about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so well, I can say this, and and I say this jokingly, but also uh, with some seriousness, was well, that um, we as humans we're, we're we're somewhat lazy in in some aspects, and that we like to categorize things in a way that makes it easy for our brain to just like, okay, this is what I'm looking at. I see it. I know what it is. And so that we don't have to do as much thinking about things. And I think when we think about uh, particularly with race, right. Um, and I speak to how for norms that are used to, uh, um, to help us, you know, categorize and, and say, okay, these individuals are black. So we need norms that are, are geared towards black individuals. These individuals are uh, Latin or Latinx. We need norms there. We need norms for age, individuals of Asian descent. But that doesn't really capture the broad spectrum of diversity within those groups, right? There's yes. so much uh, heterogeneity differences between groups, but then there's so much in within group differences. And so what I think about the intersectionality is thinking about multiple identities that, that intersect that impact, uh, uh, you know, just development in general, not just brain development, but I'm thinking about, you know, race, class, you know, and gender, 
those are intersecting uh, uh, identities. And so all of those things need to be taken into consideration when you uh, have an individual in front of you um, and you're trying to figure out, you know, educational plans, uh, uh, how to help from a social, you know, social work perspective, um, how to treat those individuals uh, uh, medicine wise and how to help them in their cognitive development. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's a framework that um, invites us to think more comprehensively about the work we're doing and considering all factors um, for me specifically that could lead to diagnosis. Right. So yes. if someone is in front of me who is of a Latin or Latinx culture who I need to know, OK, were you born in the United States or were you born from a, another country or from another region or place in the world? When did you start learning English? You know, are you bilingual? What's your level of acculturation? You know, those are the factors and in those intersecting identities that have to be taken into consideration because we know that uh, those things impact cognitive uh, development and cognitive abilities. Um, so it's it's really just asking us to take a more comprehensive view of individuals um, and then expanding it from a, a viewpoint that, that we, we just aren't accustomed to. You know, uh, what you're saying just reminded me of a story of a coach. Uh, she's an uh, Iranian descent and coaching was not even her primary role, for, but she decided to help uh, a, a, a young woman she encountered who was a first generation uh, college goer and uh, who was not very keen on going to college because she found the process intimidating. But this Iranian uh, young, uh, this lady uh, shared her perspective that when she came to U.S. when she was, um, uh, I think, in her early teens, Mm -hmm. uh, and what she found that that on college essay, the question was uh, something like, uh, so she said, I had witnessed... uh, um, you know, bombing. I had witnessed uh, uh, families being dragged out of homes. I had witnessed uh, having to live in a shelter and hide for 20 straight days. Mm. And not a single question on my college essay uh, probed into my psychology, my personal experience, or uh, my diversity. Uh, And what she ended up writing was literally her um, uh, I think I forget, like uh, going uh, to a local restaurant and ordering food or something like that, because the prompt was such. So, yeah, you're right. You know, we're missing out on people's rich experiences that shape their worldview. And this need to mainstream everybody, uh, maybe, as you said, may help the brain to automatize its process and save fuel or glucose on the brain. But it, we may be actually short circuiting some of the ways to grow our heart. So yeah. I really appreciate that uh, thought process. Absolutely. And, and I think you're, you brought up a great example in terms of um, admissions process and things like that. And um, thinking about, you know, we use certain tests to help us with admissions process. And um, there's research showing that like, hey, those tests might not be as great as we think they are. And what are the other metrics that we're going to use to help us, you know, who's a quality candidate for, um, you know, getting into a university or this fellowship or these things. And it's like, those are the things that stand out. I would love to hear about her experiences that, that is um, while traumatic, it's an amazing experience. And there's an, I'm sure there's amazing story behind the fact that this person who has experienced these traumas is applying for college and in the position she is. 
I want to talk to her. Yes, you know, I, w- I want to teach her. Yes, but it's nowhere it's mentioned that that's what what you makes you the most desirable candidate, right? right? Like I remember when I applied for grad school coming from India, I literally read the previous year's student's essay and I mimicked it because I wanted to be so cautious that I wanted to let them hear what they wanted to hear, but mm-hmm. I was misinformed about what my story might be very valuable. You know, yeah. like having grown up, like my experience with uh, d- uh, people with disabilities and 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 my experience of having uh, how community supports uh, people with disability would have been such a great essay to write about. Yeah. But I was never encouraged or there was no admission process that said, that's what we want to know about you, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. to to your point about this framework that McCormick talks about, you know, participants are multidimensional participants, uh, social group membership is dy- are dynamic, you know, power is a feature of uh, participants intersectional positions. And last one, which is participants intersectional positions create outcomes of systemic advantages and disadvantages, which are, mm-hmm. what a great way to think about it. Mm-hmm. So as we close uh, our interview, um, I'm always curious, uh, my, my amazing guest, what, what, is, um, what has shaped their thinking about things? And so do you have any recommendations for our audiences about um, books that have influenced you uh, and shaped your thought process? Yeah, you know, I was, I was just thinking about some and, and one that I um, read later in life in terms of probably uh, started reading it four or five years ago or three or four years ago was um, it's a book called cry like a man by uh, Jason Wilson. Um, And he, and he's a black author and he talks about um, his story of uh, upbringing and um, issues related to emotional expression as black men. Um, Believe it or not, that's, that's an issue Um, in terms of the idea that, you know, showing emotion and being, and that emotional intelligence, being able to describe how you feel Um, for the longest time, Um, I, I, you know, I was not the most in-depth in my emotional understanding, um, yet I'm a psychologist, which is interesting in in another aspect, but just like in relationships and being able to tell people and say, what is it exactly I'm feeling? Like, I don't have the words to say how I'm feeling. And in the book, he talks about how that led him down certain paths and how that impacted his relationships. Um, and I think it's, it's a great book, um, particularly for, um, um, for me, but also for black men in terms of just understanding more about emotions and openness with discussing those emotions and talking about them. Um, Love that. Yeah. Yeah. And then one that I've read um, uh, growing up was the autobiography of Malcolm X uh, by Alex oh. Haley. Yes. And I, I, you know, a, a phenomenal book that just looks at um, um, his growth. Um, if you want to talk about trajectory, his trajectory uh, was, was, fundamentally changed in so many ways. And I'll reference just one aspect of, he was the son of a, of a preacher um, growing up. Um, and his father was uh, very much of a, I guess you would say a black nationalist perspective, but teaching independence and to, to black men, probably in the 1930s, 19, or in a time where him speaking on, his father speaking on the things that he was speaking on was problematic. And so uh, Malcolm X's father, um, or Malcolm Little at the time, uh, his father uh, was supposedly committed suicide by falling on a, on a railroad track. Um, and mm-hmm. so what the story is that he was killed. Um, and this happened when Malcolm was, you know, uh, a teenager or a young boy. And so it showed, talked about 
his him and his brother or him and his siblings being taken away from his mother. Um, her ending up because of all of those things, having mental health issues, um, having to go into a psychiatric institution. Um, they wouldn't give them the insurance money from his uh, his life insurance plan because they said that he killed himself. And all this is in the setting of a time where um, black people were considered second class citizens. And so he went into a life of crime, um, ended up in jail, and then the rest is history in terms of his trajectory. And you think about how great, you know, we talk about Malcolm X in terms of his thinking and his just the wisdom that he had, uh, regardless of, his, of your views on his beliefs and things like that. He still became something great. Just think if he didn't have those life experiences where his father was taken from the family and those things that traumatically ex- impacted his trajectory, how great he could have been outside of what he was already great. Right. Wow. And, and, and it just speaks to, for me, just like there are so many great people out here who just need opportunity, need some things to go right in their life. Um, and we need to be able to help support people so that they can fulfill their potential because there's so many people out here with so much potential. Um, and there are so many things in the way that we could really just, if we could just fix on a, on a, you know, you know, humanity level, yes. um, we could see so much change in the world. Well, I hundred percent agree. And thank you for sharing these amazing recommendations. I have, I am going to get both these books for myself. Uh, and once again, uh, such a joy and pleasure to talk to you and folks, that's all the time we have today. Uh, thank you again, Willie, for being a, uh, my guest and uh, sharing uh, your wisdom and your perspective, uh, and particularly giving us, uh, a, um, a view of hope. Uh, I really think the, the work that you're doing is, uh, to me, a deepen is going to have a deep and wide impact. Uh, and, and I thank you for that. And for you, uh, listeners, uh, definitely keep listening. Thank you for joining us, uh, week after week. If you love, uh, what you're listening to, share this episode with your friends and colleagues and give us a, um, you know, thumbs up or a rating. That's how people find us. We are being listened to in 110 countries because of you. And uh, because of uh, that sharing that you do, uh, it gives us the opportunity to bring on these amazing guests. So thank you. And until then, um, see you here again next time on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.